Hi, I'm John Foster. Hi, I'm Josh White. And this is Left to Burn, the podcast for the battleground.eu. I was looking at the results from the French election the other day, and I was reminded of that comment that Benjamin Disraeli is supposed to have made about what the difference between a misfortune and a calamity is. <laughs> if Gladstone fell into the Thames, it would be a misfortune. Somebody pulled him out of the Thames again, it would be a calamity. That's basically what the French election results look like, I think, to any sane person. If Le Pen had won, that would have been a calamity, certainly, whereas Macron winning is merely a misfortune. And she'll keep coming back. That's the thing. I mean, people look at Macron winning and they're like, oh, my God, what a relief. And certainly it's better than the alternative, but nothing Macron is going to do is going to address the reasons why Le Pen keeps having electoral traction. And so the situation is basically just going to continue to boggle on into the future. What is Macron going to do that's going to convince people that Le Pen is not a serious alternative? Nothing, so far as I can tell. Yeah, he's not going to deal with like the fundamental conditions that are behind her vote and her agenda becoming more mainstream over time. Interestingly, the person to whom it's probably most disappointing is Vladimir Putin. I really think that he assumed that she was going to win and that a Le Pen-led government in France would be divisive to the EU, be divisive to NATO. It's one of a number of strategic miscalculations that Putin made at the beginning of his foray into Ukraine, and one that continues to shape how things are moving forward 62 days in, or however many we are into the Russo-Ukrainian wars, it's coming to be called. Yeah, he did not anticipate what we might call the Western alliance to remain cohesive. I wouldn't say united exactly, but certainly cohesive, and to the point that even politicians like Le Pen have had to restate their positions on Russia and tried to uh, toe the line very carefully. Likewise, I think even Orban has tried to distance himself a little bit. Yeah, Orban winning is one thing, and obviously it's not a good thing, but it's also not an unexpected thing given the grip that he has on the electoral system in Hungary. But Le Pen winning would be a whole other can of worms in terms of how it might affect the internal politics of NATO, how it might affect the military and defense policy of the EU. You know, if you look at Putin's broader strategic aims, it's pretty clear that a lot of miscalculations were made. Number one, pretty clearly thought it was going to be on the model of going into Crimea or the punishment beating they dealt out to Georgia back in the Audis. He clearly thought it was going to be a walk, and it hasn't turned out to be that way. And then, you know, now that they've reconcentrated in the eastern part of the country and are attacking through the Donetsk Basin, apparently it's not quite going to plan there either. I think that basically his plan was that they would just sort of walk into Ukraine. They put in another government on the model of Yanukovych. They'd integrate Ukraine into their greater Central Asian co-prosperity zone. And it really hasn't turned out that way. It seems to me that his larger goal was, okay, we're going to walk into Ukraine. We're going to let everyone know that they can't screw with us. And then we're going to apply pressure to the eastern edge of NATO, to Poland, to Romania. Clearly, there's some sort of impulse to get control of the area around the Black Sea. But the question really is, where does he go from here? I mean, even if they manage to fully take over Ukraine or fully militarily occupy Ukraine, it seems a little unlikely, especially given the volume of weapons that are now being funneled into Ukraine. Where does it go from here? The Russian foreign minister Lavrov was out in the press the other day talking about how the United States or NATO is now fighting a proxy war in Ukraine. And it's like, yeah, no duh. Did you just notice this? Because this is a great deal for the United States. It's a great deal for NATO. They don't have to have flag-draped coffins coming back into the United States. They can have like, oh my gosh, Ukrainians are dying. How tragic is that? Here, let me send you some more Javelin missiles. Meanwhile, Russia is bleeding out in terms of its 
troop commitments. And that's why Putin is so eager to try and buy off potential discontent, quite literally, by sending people checks. You know, the families of deceased Russian soldiers are, are receiving lump sums from the Russian government. Of course, they're playing down the numbers, and we may not know the full picture for a long time. We, You know, it's pretty unclear from Western reporting what the losses look like on the Ukrainian side, for example. But it's possible that the Russians have lost a lot of people in a very short space of time. And I've no doubt that some US war planners are thinking of a repeat of Afghanistan in the 80s. I think you're exactly right. There's some sort of talk about, especially from the right, the populist right in the United States, the populist right in Europe, about how this is a kind of, and then the Russians have also gone down this line, that this is some sort of plot by NATO or by the U.S. government to attack Russia. I mean, the, the idea is that the United States is attacking Russia with liberal democracy. Just let that weird idea settle in for a moment. But it calls upon one to have this idea that there is a sort of cabal of people in Foggy Bottom or whatever. Foggy Bottom, for those who don't know, is where the U.S. State Department is headquartered in Washington, D.C., who are sitting around going, wow, what's the best way we can get over on the Russians? Ha <laughs> ha, liberal democracy in Ukraine or wherever. I mean, I don't think it's a coherent policy of let's weaken Russia. As I wrote on the battleground last week, it's more of a kind of happy accident. I mean, the, getting the Russians to attack Ukraine works great from the perspective of American foreign policy works great from the perspective of NATO policy. Because once again, it's costing the Russians, it's costing the Western powers the money that it takes to send weapons there. The United States government just came out and said that they're going to send $33 billion package of aid and weapons to Ukraine. But that's chump change. The U.S. government finds $33 billion sitting behind the cushions of the couch in the State Department lounges. And $33 billion is not that much money. Whereas for the Russians... You're losing trained soldiers. You're losing military hardware. Although a, a friend of mine who follows issues of armored warfare says that from what he can tell, he hasn't seen that many T-80 tanks, the Russian top line tank. As I understand it, the T-80s didn't perform terribly well in Syria, and the Russians have been trying to refit them with different countermeasures because a 12-year-old can pop a tank with a javelin. This is a problem for the Russians because part of their deal was we're just going to roll in with overwhelming force and roll over whatever kind of opposition this is what they did in Georgia. And it hasn't, it hasn't played out that way. And there's a certain cynicism, I think, to U.S. policy, as there often is with U.S. policy. Cynicism is nothing new. But it's also a gargantuan tactical and strategic error from the perspective of the Russians, because this costs the United States almost nothing. And it's costing them a lot. And it continues to cost them. And there's no good place that this goes for them. It's like Lyndon Johnson's comment during the Vietnam War about it's like being on a Texas highway during a hailstorm. You can't run and you can't hide and you can't make a stop. Like, where do they go from here? They can't just pull back. I mean, ideally, what they do is pull back and just keep Donetsk and Luhansk. But even that looks like a loss of face. They can't militarily occupy Ukraine and then trying to push into other states. Lavrov made a comment about nuclear war being more likely. But the problem with nuclear weapons is they're only useful if the other side doesn't have them. No, exactly. There's a balance of military force on, quote, unquote, both sides, if we want to phrase it like that, Russia on one side and the US and its allies on the other. And as I keep pointing out, yes, that balance of forces is kind of a deterrent to Putin pushing the big red button, if you want to have that metaphor. <laughs> it's not actually how it works. But And likewise, his nuclear arsenal is a deterrent to the US doing the same. That's true up to a point, but it's also permission for certain kinds of aggression that we're seeing. And as you've pointed out, the aggressive options open are not working, and retreat isn't really possible at this point. A protracted proxy war is quite likely. 
Yeah, I mean, he's got the problem that everything he does that could move his agenda forward, that's this is Vladimir Putin I'm talking about, costs him more. Just to be clear, I think that the likelihood of a nuclear exchange is, is very remote. It's like the computer says in the War Games movie from the 1980s, the only way to win is not to play. Anybody who uses nuclear weapons then gets a big old downside, even if it's not getting counterstruck. Putin's big problem, his whole sort of policy toward Trump was to get rid of the Magnitsky Act sanctions, to get him back in touch with U.S. oil companies that could give him the technology that would make his oil fields more productive, get them up to speed in terms of technology so they could start exploiting the oil fields in the Barents Sea. They don't have that technology, and they're not going to get it from the United States, unless Trump wins again. That's a whole other can of worms. I mean, they might get it from the Chinese if the Chinese manage to develop it, but there's no, there's no upside for them in doing it because they don't have a, a huge domestic oil industry, as far as I know. As an American, I was blissfully unaware of the military element of the EU. I know that the EU has engaged in about 30 military missions. The CSDP, the Combined Security and Defense Policy, is funded to the level of about $20 billion, which, once again, not a huge amount of money. But NATO's whole budget is only about $5 billion. One of the EU's big problems in terms of military strategy is coming up with a cohesive... I mean, this is one of the kind of interesting things about the UK's departure from the EU is that they also departed from the CSDP. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Brexit has security implications for the European Union. That's clear insofar as it kind of affects how much funding and how much support there might be for certain operations. But it's still the case that the UK is so deeply entwined with the US at the military level and the political level that the UK will probably be fairly aligned with the EU, so long as there isn't a divergence, you know, like of the kind that we saw in 2003, where you had, you know, France, Germany, siding up with Russia and China in opposition to the Iraq war, for example, that kind of thing. As long as there's kind of convergence of interest between the EU and NATO powers, that can kind of be overcome. It's not like the UK is going to take a particularly different line at this point, I don't think. Well, the UK was always, as I understand it from, from things I've been reading the last few weeks, always a bit disruptive in terms of the EU's attempts to come up with a coherent command structure. The EU also has been mostly Southern focused. So if you look at the operations they've undertaken, they've been in the Sahel, they've been in the Horn of Africa, they've been in the Mediterranean. But for instance, they couldn't get it together to have a sort of coherent military engagement uh, during the Libyan revolution. And that was a, that was a NATO thing because the, the EU couldn't, couldn't get it together. So there were too many divisions. Uh, you know, Italy was very strongly opposed to that at the time. Um, I think Germany was as well. You know, it was, it was very much led by the UK and France and the US, obviously. But it seems like um, the EU, when it comes to its military balance, you might say that, um, Traditionally, France and the UK were the leaders in terms of military power. Of course, the UK is now out of the picture. But at the same time, Germany is the economic hegemon, but it doesn't have that military presence for obvious historical reasons. Yeah, although it might develop one now. I mean, this, the more this situation in Ukraine goes on, the more the defense hawks in Germany, I mean, the more their arguments 
carry weight. And and I think that this is a problem right now for the Schultz government is what are they going to do? I mean, they've clearly got all this baggage in terms of Germany's behavior in the mid 20th century. I'm reminded at this point of that quote from Bertolt Brecht about what is the robbing of a bank compared to the founding of a bank. And I mean, it's something that the Germans seem to have learned over the course of the 20th century. Why try militarily robbing the bank when you can just become the bank? And it's not quite soft power, but it's not military power either, but it's definitely power. The interesting thing for the UK is that now they get to free ride in a way that lots of people did on the UK in the 19th century. I mean, there's really nothing that anybody can do. I mean, the UK is a nuclear armed power for a start, but also there's a lot of Europe between the UK and anybody who'd want to do anything to them. The UK has made the point that they want to integrate more extensively with us, with the United States. So, I mean, I think that this from their perspective, looks like a good thing because they don't get dragged into military operations that aren't directly related to their security imperatives as they see them. Yeah, I think that's definitely the case. Time will tell if the UK pursues a a very different foreign policy than it has historically in the post-war period. Things can change very dramatically, and Russia-Ukraine does seem like a, a catalytic conflict that will set off all manner of changes that we can't even foresee, you know. Yeah, this is the irony of the situation that Lord Ismay, the first general secretary of NATO, famously said that the purpose of the organization was to keep the Americans in, the Russians out, and the Germans down. And what's happening now, Pache, what NATO might want as an umbrella organization, is to keep the Russians out, the Americans in, in the sense of let's be a part of it, but let's not have coffins coming back to Andrews Air Force Base. But now the Germans are up. And they're going to be up. I mean, they're going to be the hegemonic power in the region for the foreseeable future. So it'll be interesting to see how that interacts with Germany's historical position in Europe since 1914, let's say. Because if they become a more militarily, not maybe aggressive, but powerful state, it'll be kind of interesting to see how cool everyone else in Europe is with that, given the things that that happened in the 20th century. There's a lot of things going on right now, and it seems like... It's going to be probably at least several weeks before we see how things are going to shake out. Ukraine, it seems like the Russians have shifted their focus, but it's not clear that this is going to work yet. So it'll be interesting to see if they can apply pressure to some of these states further west or whether that just causes the EU to come up with a more coherent defense policy, a more coherent policy in terms of arms production, arms distribution, to see whether the states on the eastern edge of the EU start arming up. It'll be interesting to see how things work out in the next few weeks, especially if the Russians get bogged down in eastern Ukraine and can't move their military policy forward in terms of their their larger strategic goals. That looks very, very likely. And at the same time, there's very little sign of a peace deal. It looks like the Russians are moving away from diplomacy, sadly, Um, despite the fact that there have been signals that Zelensky is moving towards neutrality and, you know, kind of accepting a certain amount of what should we call it, territorial concessions. The Russians have moved away from their maximalist aims in talks, but it seems like those talks were kind of a distraction in many ways, and they're, they're relying on brute force at this point, which isn't working. Yeah, that's true. So the situation is very fluid, and it doesn't seem like either side has gotten to the point of feeling like they really need to seriously negotiate, so it'll be interesting to see whether they move in that direction in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, we can only hope. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for tuning in. This has been Left to Burn for the Battleground.eu. Thanks for listening.